Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. Before him lay the great bottommost cellar of the ancient dwarves right at the mountain's root. It was almost dark so that its vastness could only be dimly guessed. But rising up from the near side of the rocky floor, there was a great glow. The glow of Smorg. There he lay, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep his wings folded like an immeasurable bat, his long, pale belly crusted with gems. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils and wisps of smoke, but his fires were low in slumber. Welcome to After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. I'm Dr. Maddie Pelling. And I'm Dr. Anthony Delaney. And today we're talking, you might have guessed, about dragons, myths and maybe realities with Jasmine Elmer. Jasmine is a classicist with a fascination for ancient monsters. She's just finished, I have to say, a really incredible documentary all about dragons, which is out now on History Hit. So if you're already a subscriber, you can watch that. Not immediately. Listen to this episode first, then go straight away to History Hit. If you're not a subscriber, but you've been thinking about maybe signing up, then let Jasmine and her work persuade you to go over to historyhit.com and sign up now. So Jasmine, welcome to After Dark. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. (laughs) I feel like I should just call myself Doctor something because you guys seem to have both to have a doctorate. I thought I could just, <laughs> just add it just on. Just whack it on. Just add I'm it just on. plain it's old fine. Jasmine. Just plain old Jasmine. <laughs> Maybe I could add my own title I could uh, work on. <laughs> you, you can be the dragon doctor. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I'll just do that. I'll just poo poo everyone's hard work on their PhDs and chuck in whatever title I want, shall I? Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a good idea. Jasmine Elmer, mother of dragons. There we go. Oh, <laughs> nice. Good. Sorted. Appreciate that. I'll take that. I'm going to go and update my website straight away. Fantastic. So, Obviously, dragons, we're going to talk about it. We know dragons from The Hobbit. We've just heard Bilbo uh, seeing, I want to say Smog. I know some people say Smaug, which, first of all, before we get into dragons, what side of the debate do you come down on, Jasmine? Is it Smog? Is it mm. Smaug? I'm a Smaug. Oh, controversial. I'll be honest, based on almost no particular 
knowledge of what one you should really go for. I just think it sounds more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. why not mix it up? Like one day you might be on both. <laughs> just whichever one feels nice, really. Can I also be potentially controversial here and say, I hate The Hobbit. <gasps> I hate that book. Go away. Get I out. absolutely just can't get out stand right it. Now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know there are people clicking off at all <laughs> worlds, but I just can't cope. I can't. Is, is it the book or the film or all of it? Haven't seen the film. So yes, the book. Oh, okay. I've tried to read it multiple times, but I am not able to read. No, I can read. But it's not. <laughs> it's just, I can't. I just, you know what gets it for me? And this is in any book. Weird names they don't go into my head and weird place names, they don't go into my head. So I go through The Hobbit being entirely lost where I'm like, what? So you're not a fantasy reader then? I, I find like it difficult. The names Just, and the places. Truly, I yeah, truly, I find fantasy very difficult because I can't quite get a grasp on names and places. Yeah. So you do know you're talking to an ancient world expert today, right? So you do not like anything in the ancient world if you don't like weird names. <laughs> I find it hard too. <laughs> truly, I find the ancient world hard too because I'm like, who, where? Okay, I can kind of visualize where they are if it's actually grounded in some geographical place, which it's not always. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, I'm like, yeah, that sounds lovely. I don't know what you're saying. It is my block it's my history but I was t talking to somebody <laughs> recently about the thing that they dislike about history and two of my things are I can't remember stuff about unusual names and places and then military history is, is the other block but the Hobbit is just not my favourite thing. I'm not, maybe me, me and Maddie should just do this on our own then. I feel like you run yeah. pop off for a cup of tea today. No, no, because <laughs> I will have interesting questions Yay. that come from a place of ignorance. Okay, okay. So we've established that Anthony hates The Hobbit. Not, and not a great start. And all words. All words, all <laughs> fantasies, all dragons, he hates them. Thinking of sort of dragons in popular culture, though, we've got obviously we've got Game of Thrones, we've got Harry Potter. Jasmine, do you have a favourite pop culture dragon? Oh, my God. No, because, yeah, no, I don't. Now I've got one, and it's the Hydra from Disney's Hercules. <gasps> nice. I mean, that's a good it is just story. Disney's nice. Hercules for me. I, I don't know. It's the songs, isn't it? Just gets me every time. Yeah. And cue the music, Jasmine Sing. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, my microphone seems to be broken. I mean, uh. Well, it does lead us nicely. Nice segue because mentioning the Hydra there, that's maybe a bit of an unexpected dragon in terms of what we think of dragons. Say we think of them as being these huge, fire-breathing, scaly, often winged dragons. They're really big into gold as uh, Smog or Smaug is in The Hobbit. But they haven't always looked like that, have they? So take us back through the mists of time to the ancient world that Anthony finds so hard to navigate. Tell us about <laughs> the sort of earliest origins of dragons. When do we first encounter them in myths and stories? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a huge question. And I think I have to make this distinction straight up between sort of we're talking here in a Western tradition, mm -hmm. like a Eurocentric tradition. Yes. Otherwise, yeah. if we start, you know, we could get into kind of Eastern dragons and how long they've been around. And that's a different type of you know, mythical story that we have there. But, you know, in terms of the Western dragon, you know, we can go all the way back into the very earliest civilizations that we know. Babylonian cultures have dragons. And obviously, for me, firm, strong dragons in the classical period. So, you know, they are really, really old. And they seem to be in mythologies that are as old as we know. And of course, we can't even get into the stories that were told before these civilizations that weren't recorded, you can imagine that dragons may even have been part of those cultures as well in oral traditions. So to answer that, they've been around a long time, probably as long as we've been around and had our imaginations to create them. 
most cultures, most ancient cultures have some kind of dragon story involved. And, you know, kind of what they look like and what they're about is really quite interesting because, as you say, you've just beautifully described the one that we all think of, the the scary, medieval looking dragon. That's the one in our heads. But actually, a lot of diversity in the ancient world as to what a dragon might look like, its characteristics, which I find fascinating maybe anthony will like that who knows <laughs> well anthony anthony is now speaking of himself in the third person and already has a question actually <laughs> due to his ignorance around dragons and the classical world but my question is you said dragons have been around as long as we have but is there some archaeological explanation going on in terms of that human invention of dragons to explain maybe items they're coming across that they don't necessarily know what they're they're encountering yeah i mean for sure that's a, it's a really interesting point i think that's why we can make claims like they possibly knew about these things early on because they found i'm definitely holding on to this last point to like make this dramatic drop of information but actually i'm not making any sense so i'll just drop it now which is <laughs> the fossils finding dinosaur fossils or the remains of earlier animals like even a mammoth and a bone you can imagine they look huge these bones and they look you know they kind of can't really explain them so one way is possibly finding these these fossils and making up stories to try and rationalize them and explain them in some way and that is one possible route of where the the dragon story comes from i mean obviously it's a horrible question like who was the first bloke or woman knocking around that went and found one and went oh i'm gonna make up a story about this thing i'm gonna call it this and then i mean i can't answer that but what you do know is once this story gets into circulation of course there's this amazing effect where you get that kind of cultural snowballing of where you get all these different societies that pick up on the story and make it their own so definitely some kind of like basis in paleontology rather than archaeology i'd say and i find that really fascinating because the other point is to understand that you know if we're thinking about greece for example because obviously i'm going to always try and steer it back there being a classicist but earthquakes and things like that in the region means that these sorts of things are actually you might think jasmine are they that common that they would find a fossil you don't really find them very often in your back garden nowadays but actually there's evidence that they would have found these things enough of the time especially in greece and earthquake prone locations as these things kind of you know were moving about in the soil and came up so it's plausible. It's plausible it comes from something like that, a rationalisation, a kind of playing around with the world around them. And that's all myth though, right? So <laughs> all myth often is trying to explain human nature or the world around you. So it just kind of makes logical sense to me that is a bone, mm. let's make up a story about it. It's this creature thing. Mm. I suppose as well, you know, we can speculate on having sort of material evidence for dinosaurs and, and people trying to interpret that. But also I think dragons belong... Do you think it's fair to say to just a broader tradition of monsters? I'm thinking of like sea monsters or, you know, if you think to like the Anglo-Saxon world and like Beowulf with Grendel and Grendel's mother over the hill, you know, something that's just always on the edge of the landscape over the horizon in the woodland, in the water that you can't see the depths of. You know, there's something about human psychology that wants to invent, you know, we think of Smog, Smog in The Hobbit, you know, inside the mountain. He's just out of reach, but he's there literally undermining 
society and safety, human safety anyway. I mean, I don't really want to add to that because you just put it so perfectly. I mean, just in short, <laughs> we'll yes. all just go home now. <laughs> but, but I'm exactly here for right. one word answers from the guests. <laughs> yeah. That's good. This will be a great podcast. Like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> great, great short podcast for everyone. Yeah, no, totally. Obviously, you know, I would firmly put uh, dragons as part of the kind of monster canon. And yeah, you're right. And I think it's because of how they behave and where they live. And as as you quite rightly say, especially in an ancient context where geographical location is even more distant in lots of times. You know, if you think about medieval, we were trading a bit more, there are advanced technology, et cetera, et cetera. And then further on, the unknown becomes smaller and smaller, right? Where's the frontier to unknown places? And monsters nearly always dwell on the periphery or the boundary or into those unknown places. So and also their behavior, they kind of maraud around. They like to be a nuisance. They look scary. They end up in battles with heroes. They sort of, you sort of tick, tick, tick the boxes of what you kind of take a traditional monster myth to be. So absolutely, I would say they are monsters. And it's quite interesting, like you say, when you think about the human psychology element to that. I think that if you think about what Greeks and Romans or ancients were thinking about dragons, I think they would also they'd put them in that category themselves. They're afraid of it. They're not like, oh, great, a dragon. Although there are some goodies, which we could talk about maybe later. But in general, they are monsters, I would say. You talk about them looking scary. And then you mentioned earlier that they don't necessarily always look like that Tolkien-esque dragon that we had at the start of the episode. Can you give us an insight into what some of the more unusual looking dragons or the earlier dragons, I suppose, might have looked like as opposed to what we were more familiar with today? Yeah, because the one we've got is like this typecast, isn't it? It's like they tend to like replicate exactly the same features in dragons, sort of medieval and post-medieval period. It just they look like that thing, right? That you just got in your head. So I don't even need to describe it. But when you go back into ancient cultures, and I'm being general about ancient cultures here again, remembering I'm talking mainly in the Western tradition, the European tradition, there's actually quite a few different looks. <laughs> Like, depending on the monster you're talking about. So in the classical period, the dragon is a snake. And actually, you can trace that back into sort of Babylonian and more ancient cultures as well. So really, it's a dracon is the Greek for a dragon, but really is a snake. So anything serpentine. And that's why if you look back into the classical period and before, you kind of see snakes. And you're probably saying to me, Jazz, there aren't any dragons back there because you're not you're looking back on that image that you've got right now of that medieval dragon. They are there. <laughs> it's just that they were snakes. They, they all of them had an origin as a snake. And you can see that in the more modern dragon because it's the scaliness, isn't it? And, you know, interestingly, the fire. So there are some ancient dragons that perhaps breathe fire, but mainly it's to do with the venom that a snake would have. So if you think about, oh, you wow. think, well, I mean, I don't know if you've been bitten by a snake, guys. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> no, not this week. <laughs> I haven't, thank God. But if you have, then, you know, it's supposed to be a fiery, you know, it's supposed to be like a burning, isn't it? Like the poison, the venom. Uh, is a burning sensation. And so that's where we probably think the motif of fire comes from. And obviously when you want to show that visually, fire breathing is an easier way to, you know, how am I going to show you venom in a picture? Mm. Not really. I'll just do fire. So again, it's all these things exist. The seeds are always there. And there's little roots in reality then as well, isn't there? And in in the real, the real animal world. And then it's kind of bigger and better 
and fantastical. Exactly that, you know, so that's why you get those scaly elements. There are actually wings as well in the ancient world. You do get wings, like Typhon has wings and you get Babylonia, like Tiamat has wings. So you do get wings for them and they're not always there though. Why is this the case? I think first of all, it makes them more interesting if they're a bit different, right? Different monsters for different things. But obviously the symbolism of each element comes together to create a new whole. So I think that that depends on the context of the story and the culture you're talking about and the time. But, you know, there are those sorts of characteristics that continue to go on. Like even Medusa, if you think about Medusa, Medusa had wings as well. Mm. So there you go. I mean, it's not as neat and tidy as it is our medieval one, yeah. but I think more interesting and allows for kind of more detailed and fun analysis of what's going on in one particular storyline. Absolutely. And it makes sense as well in the ancient world when we think about ancient gods and goddesses that that's a kind of pick your own adventure. And lots of those individual gods or goddesses change shape. They change their characteristics depending on the story, depending on what hero they're coming into contact with. Like Medusa, for example, that you mentioned, you know, her story changes massively depending on who's telling it. So why wouldn't the monsters change as well? That makes total sense. Exactly. And you kind of get these pure dragons that like look, more like what you think they do. And then you get what we call composite dragons. So they're the ones that are kind of like a mishmash of whatever's going on. Some of them really weird, like the Chimera. So you do have these like different genres within dragons as well, especially in the classical period. So it just makes it more interesting and you can add different elements into your storytelling. And we've got to remember, in case people are unsure, these things are not real. So <laughs> they are made up. Yeah, I know. So sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, you know, like that's why we need those extra elements because we need to embellish a story or add something to it or add an element. So, yeah. Mm. It's something that I think you do so well in the documentary for History Hit and we can sort of get into this is how dragons always sort of reflect something about the people who are telling the stories about them. It's a way of, I suppose, reflecting back societal concerns or anxieties. And we can talk a little bit about what dragons sort of tell us about ourselves. So I'm going to make Anthony describe a few pictures that we've got here in front of us of different dragons or dragon-like creatures from the ancient world. So, which is you know, a task Anthony always loves to do. Um, so Anthony, the first one we have <laughs> is an ancient Greek pot, an urn. Tell us what's going on in this image. I will. I'll tell you precisely. And <laughs> everyone should take my word as gospel. Um, I see a, a one bodied but many headed snake. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like 10 odd heads there going on. There's two lads, one either side. And one fella has one snake by the neck, which is pointless because there's another nine. And then, oh, yeah, the other fella has another snake by the neck. They have stuff that they're going to look like they're going to behead those particular heads. And then there's love hearts. Oh, maybe that's a leaf. Either a black love heart <laughs> or a black leaf. I don't know. Surrounding that, but that's just decorative. I don't think it's got anything got to do with the story. And if I were to look at that, though, I see scales, but I would not say dragon, which is interesting based on what you've just been telling us, Desmond, in terms of they are dragons, just a, a kind of an earlier form. Um, so there ends my brilliant presentation on this particular urn or whatever it is now doesn't tell me everything I got wrong <laughs> I just want to leave it there <laughs> I think that was great <laughs> um okay so you're looking at a pot that shows the image of Heracles it's Greek name for Hercules do what you want with the names don't really care because it's a Greek pot I'm gonna call him Heracles slaying the Lernaean Hydra which is the second of his labors if you know his famous labors where he gets to do these impossible tasks so the reason it's impossible is because this this particular monster 
lives in this lake and if you cut off a head to grow in its place so I think you counted the heads like I think you said like nine or ten or something there I didn't quite catch the number many heads yes and you know in the text there a whole range of the number of heads the hydra's got but it could be god knows how many right because up to thousands probably but you know the bad thing is you know cut off the head to grow in its place so the only way that Heracles can kill it off, because he obviously tries to, you've seen the, the movie, you've seen the Hercules movie, uh-huh. slashing away at it. Oh no, too many heads. What am I going to do now? And so he cauterizes them in the end. So they can't grow anymore. And that's how he manages to kill it off. So there you go. That's the story. There's different versions of that. That's the basic one. And the Hydra is exclusive to Greece? So that with the many-headed monster, is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah. Oh, it's not a Hydra. No, exactly. The Hydra, this is the Linnaean Hydra, like a water snake. So you have other examples of water snakes for sure. But this is the particular sort of relates to the ancient Greek story of I this see. particular Hydra. Yeah. Because you get sea monsters, which are a different, another different category. There are so many categories here. See how complex it is? <laughs> yeah, I do yeah. see how complex uh, it Auntie's is. Auntie's freaking out here. Uh, yes, too many I words am. as well, isn't it? It's too many words. So I'll cut it down for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There are sea monsters, right, who live in the sea. But then you've got water snake ones. Anyway, we've gone off the story of Heracles. Anyway, he does it, doesn't he? Because it's a, it's a labour. He's got to win. So he yeah. wins. And the little dude is uh, Iolaus, who is his, like, nephew, who comes and helps him occasionally, just knocks up. And there is, hilariously, I don't think it's in the the one you've got there, actually, but there is a little add to this myth that we see, which is Hera, who's the one that sent him on the quest in the first place, sends a little crab to, like, add into the mix. I mean, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Let's set him against this massive monster that's going to kill him, easy. And then, oh, it's not working. Let me send a tiny crab just to annoy them. And then you get these in this image, this little crab knocking around at the bottom, which I don't think you had in that one. But um... No, I don't see a crab. It's very aerial little mermaid, though. That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> We're mixing yeah. up all the Disneys now. Yeah. <laughs> we have completely confused everyone that's listening now. They're going to be like, what is this myth? We are so sorry. Do you know, one thing that is coming out of this, though, I think, is a very early example of a hero killing a dragon-like creature because this is Mm. kind of a key part of the dragon mythology, isn't it? That people go and kill them, usually men, that in order to prove yourself as a hero in whatever universe you're involved in, killing the dragon wins you some brownie points. It proves that you're a hero. Exactly. Yeah, it's a tale as old as time, isn't it? That you get these in the very earliest of stories. Gilgamesh, for example, he has to get a dragon. (laughs) <laughs> he has to fight against a dragon. I mean, in a wider sense, it's a monster usually of some description, isn't it? And it often is actually something dragon-like in very early mythologies. And you're right that they're in some ways the reason they exist as parts of myth is because the hero needs the baddie <laughs> to kill off to prove his worth. And you're right, it's men. They have to go through, you know, that there's that famous thing, it's called the heroic cycle, where they go through all these parts of their story. And one element of that story is nearly always kill a baddie. And, you know, that's what they're there for. So often to prove their, there might be a godlike element to it, proving their godlike strength or cunning ability or something like that to go through this cycle. So you're right that there's always usually, each dragon I can think of, especially in the classical period, has their opponent right the famously medusa and perseus for example you've we've just spoken about heracles and the hydra typhon fights zeus that's the point of them really isn't it the main point 
the one thing that's quite interesting is when it's a human hero of some description, even Zeus is like, you know, humanoid looking at Levenu, even if he's a god, often there's this concept of order over chaos. So the dragon will symbolize some kind of chaos. And actually, when you get me, we spoke about all the weird little features that dragons can have earlier on. And in some ways, that's another like kind of play on the making them even more chaotic and like mind blowing and bizarre so that they're weirder to you and more chaotic so that the figure that is usually the male, I'm not going to get into the patriarchy on here, but we can come another time <laughs> on that one, right? But the male figure can impose order by slaying the dragon. And you get that in a lot of stories. So there is a big point to it. I, kind of, I know we're mucking about here, but there's a serious, a really like massive cosmological point to these battles. And they do exist in the oldest of kind of ancient cultures. So it's there from like, you know, again, day dot almost. Mm. Tell us about Typhon. So this is another Greek monster, isn't it? But his appearance is completely insane. Yeah, so Typhon, because he's very, very ancient, so he's one of the very first dragons. There is like a sort of like, you can get a dragon family tree pretty much in classical dragons. He's one of like, the, I call him the Mac Daddies, you know, top dog, right? Old school one. He's been there for a long time. And he, that's why he's fighting Zeus, because it's this time really before man and... And, you know, what he looks like is you see, there's lots of pottery with his image on there. And it, he looks very much like the kind of Babylonian before him, the kind of Mesopotamian dragon, Tiamat. There's a lot of connection between how they look. So often there is some, he can be winged. He can, might have a serpentine bottom half. He has snakes flying off him somewhere in random places. So he kind of looks different. He, you know, there's associations sometimes with him because he's a god of like storm, a storm god and wind. So there's all of that going on. He's got a very kind of unusual iconography, probably because he's borrowing almost from the Mesopotamian tradition. It's not quite Greek yet. It's very early in the storyline. So, but he's a pretty cool figure. And one thing I personally love about him, because I made a joke about PhDs. I did do a bit of a PhD, but I quit it to do this stuff. And it was actually about volcanic activity and the connection between dragons and volcanic activity. So one of the like rational explanations of Typhon is that he's very well connected to Mount Etna in various ancient authors make this connection between the fact that Typhon and Zeus have this big fight and one of the places that he was chucked at the end of it is under Mount Etna. So it's a sort of rationalisation for volcanic activity so that this monster is under the ground trying to get out, all the lava's spewing. So you do actually get a really fascinating connection between dragons and landscape because it's not the only story where you get a connection between volcanic activity and, and dragons and I'm not going to claim this, but my professor at university called it Dragonscapes. Nice. Which I think is, yeah. I mean, lovely. props to That's that. That's a word That's a we great, can get on board with. I think Anthony's onto that. He's into that word. He, he well, no, to I, that yeah. <laughs> I have, I, there's a question that's forming again. You know, you mentioned earlier, like, of course, these things don't exist. But was there a time when people thought they did? Or was it always this mm. rationalisation of the landscape or of explaining natural phenomenon or, or trying to storytell? But was there ever a time where they thought, don't go in that cave? Well, yeah. I mean, of course there is. I mean, I don't even think it's as neat as like we go from uh, storytelling into rationalisation, although the rationalisations that come from ancient authors tend to happen in the later period, later Greek and Roman period. So they get more interested in the science of what's going on. So, you know, in that sense, you do see more of that developing in the later classical periods. But 
It's a bit of a mean question, Anthony, because it's the same question like, did they believe in the gods? Because like, this is all this big pantheon of like everything, isn't it? It's like the mythology, you take, you know, I'm not saying they take it or leave it, pick and choose, but what do they believe is a bit of a sticky question because absolutely some people will believe it mm. for sure. And other people think, pa, what yeah. a load of rubbish, even earlier on in this period, right? Some people have asked me before, like, we obviously don't believe in dragons now. Like I said, spoiler alert for those people that are, like, freaking out of that, but sorry. And one of the reasons is because we've been everywhere. We've explored everywhere. We have technology. We have knowledge at our fingertips, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you try and understand this ancient world where, you know, you could leave your city, leave your vicinity, and then, like, you could just die on the edge of that. It's, like, it's truly deadly when you're out of your own, like, sphere of influence, and we're very sanitised today, aren't we, and safe. You'd be like, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'll just ring on. I'll just ring. What's the international emergency number? I don't know that one. No, no, none of us know, <laughs> so we're all dead. Scenario. None <laughs> of us are doing Survivor, that's none what I'm saying. None of us know, so that's not great. But the point is that we have these safety nets. But then can you imagine that that might come out as a fear of a monster, a fear of what's over there? I mean, you might not always think it literally, but wild beasts are going to be out there. Mm -hmm. people have seen or heard of the wild beast so it's not even that far to go could one of them look like a dragon yeah. i mean yeah. yeah i mean a crocodile looks a bit yeah. like a dragon so there's the annoying answer so i'm gonna go yes no which is my favorite way of answering a question that's like that <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most famous dragon stories we have is the tale of St George versus the dragon. The story originates from Georgia. Though George became the patron saint of England in the 14th century, the story of his fight against the dragon was written down in the 13th century by the Bishop of Genoa. George came across a village that was being tortured by a dragon. After feeding it all of their livestock, the villagers held a lottery to decide which human they must now send to the fearsome beast. The unlucky victim was to be the king's daughter. As the princess walked out to her death, George fought the dragon, 
and managed to tie a rope around its neck. He gave the princess the dragon to lead back into the village and demanded that, if they wanted that dragon slain, all the citizens must convert to Christianity. They agreed, the dragon was slain. Not only had George rescued the people from danger, he'd created a village of Christians and therefore saved their souls as well. Yay! <laughs> souls have been saved. We have Christianity coming into the, the dragon story now. So what does the dragon of the Christian European world look like? Smaug. Smog, Smeog, whatever we want to call him today. <laughs> you, that's a new one. Jim. Yeah. Oh, I just made it up. Um, I mean, yes, it's the one you've got in your head. It's the one you imagined as a child. It's the scaly, fire-breathing, winged, treasure-hoarding thing. But what's different that I'd say is that this dragon is firmly kind of placed now into the realm of evil. So although we spoke about dragons being monsters earlier on, don't think the Greeks and Romans had this sense of good and evil in the same way that we see in the Christian period, you know. So it's essentially a creature of the devil, really, isn't it? The, the dragon in the okay, well, Christian era. What is the Christian era? It's not really a thing, is it? You know what I mean? In terms of Christian thinking. Mm -hmm. One thing that's striking me, and this is based on Jasmine's teaching, so this is me showing I've learned something today. Excellent, is I like that. that the English patron saint, that is St. George, and the Irish patron saint are potentially lit more linked than one might think in that St. Patrick banishes the snakes, St. George is overcoming the dragon, and you have told us, Jasmine, that they are linked in terms of their kind of origin story. So um, maybe we're more alike than we thought. Yeah, I mean, this is how I think all day, every day. Because you think like, and I try and be as, uh, I'll be careful and cautious here because we've been in mythology and we're now entering religion. So this is, for some people, this is, you know, I'm not personally religious or Christian. So I mean, no disrespect when I say this, but when you look at the stories, you can see origins of the stories of saints then, you know, we're looking back at the ancient hero. So you're right. I mean, this is my argument. Everything starts in the ancient world, everything. So what happens then, this morphing from the ancient world into, let's call it the medieval Christian world, mm -hmm. and I'm talking in very, very broad chronological terms here, is that the hero is maybe being transformed in some way into the sort of saintly, heroic figures that we get in the Christian tradition, and that dragons no longer represent chaos necessarily but evil which i suppose has lots of connections but i can see that that is a different concept at the heart of these stories there's still this tradition of man goes out and kills dragon i'm thinking about some of the early medieval examples we've already mentioned beowulf and obviously the big climax of the beowulf story uh for anyone who doesn't know turn off now if you don't want the spoiler is that he fights a dragon he battles a dragon is this just a hangover from the medieval world? Do you think it's doing something different in terms of like moral teaching? Are these male figures, heroes like Beowulf, and more obviously Christian saintly figures, are they doing the same thing that Heracles is doing in the ancient Greek world? Yeah, I'm going to call it medieval piggybacking. <laughs> I don't think anyone would argue with do they predate this period? Yes, they do. I mean, it's obvious. But you are right. They're piggybacking on it, but they are making it their own. Because obviously what they're trying to teach through Christian thinking, you've got to think about sort of the context for where these images are shown. 
So like, you know, I, for example, in, in the dock, I'm looking at one uh, in a local church wall and, and you see them a lot around in churches, which are kind of like weird, actually. It's kind mm. of like scary. And so, you know, normal people are seeing these images as well as you, you might think of like a lofty painting somewhere that's been commissioned. that's quite posh or, you know, that would obviously be for private viewing, probably, you, you might imagine. So... These images, though, they're everywhere. And it's one way of, you know, Christian thinking really to get out there in a kind of iconographic way. And so what you see is goody versus baddie. You see the light of God versus the darkness of the devil. You see, you know, the fire becomes less about the venom and perhaps the fear of the unknown. We spoke about that geographically in the wild. Less about that, more about hell. You know, the need for the light of God and this saintly figure to vanquish it, I'd say is quite similar. You're right. The order over chaos thing in Christian thinking, that is the same thing. Because what is order? It's the way of God. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the light. What's the bad stuff? It's the way of the devil and the dark. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, it is exactly the same. One thing that strikes me about this is I would never have equated a dragon with Christianity, which may be more obvious in the English Christian tradition or elsewhere, because I know the dragon and Christianity is not just an English thing, but obviously the St. George image is quite widespread. But I would never have thought, yeah, Christianity equals dragon. It doesn't seem to sit comfortably in my head, but of course it absolutely does when you think back to these these stories. I think it's because... The sort of fantasy that you're probably imagining, the fact that when when is that you know, when is it being written is a horrible question again, isn't it? But you know, it's hundreds of years probably after the medieval period that we start to get this interest in fantasy and dragons being come something in the realm of fantasy. But where does that come from? And yes, it comes from well, we've gone all the way back many thousands of years, actually, haven't we? But you know, if you're going to take it back somewhere, it's in that Christian idea. It does make sense, right, that the dragon becomes potentially this kind of creature of the devil. And in its behavior as well, like, you know, often living in a cave, darkness. In some ways, then you do see that thing about the wild back in there, the fear of places, you know, sometimes these geographical, excuse me, locations. So there's always these like little sprinkles left from the ancient world that are all there. But I think it's just fascinating how you get this like real demonizing of the dragon in a much stronger way than you do in the ancient world. I wonder as well if there's something to be said about medieval attitudes to gender and sex here, because when we see the story of St. George, whether it's written down or depicted in different artworks, whether that's you know on the wall of a 14th century church or in a painting, he's always impaling the dragon with a lance. And I think it's fair to say that it's quite sort of phallic and maybe sexualized, but he's always rescuing a damsel in distress. And I wonder if that says something about Christian ideas of morality and sort of female purity versus male intrepidness. Yeah, I mean, essentially more piggybacking, using this to make more of a point about gender roles, about behaviour, exactly. So in the documentary, actually, we spoke about this, uh, Dr. Sam Ritchie, who is an expert and has written extensively about gender and the potential symbolism of things like a lance. And she talked about different dragons and how many images there are of dragons where you can see their vagina and the spearing of from some kind of saintly figure into the mouth of a dragon is symbolic of the action of penetration. 
where she took that, I don't know in her, this is her life's work sort of thing. So I don't want to put words into her mouth, but those sorts of like, I guess, fears of sexuality are in there. I am an ancient world expert. So med- I'm not, I don't want to speak too much about all of that symbolism in the medieval period, but it's there and it will be multifaceted and multi-layered because you included it. So you're making a point, but also why have you put it on a church wall? Mm. It's interesting. It's definitely there though. You're right that it definitely exists. And it's, it, it's an important element of artistic analysis. Yeah, well, to quote the culturally very highbrow film that is Shrek, it's (laughs) so fascinating that you're talking, we're now on to dragon vaginas, and that's the only female dragon I can think of. And it's that's so interesting that maybe the dragon in the medieval world is more commonly gendered female, and therefore represents a sort of evil chaos version to go alongside and in opposition to the pure damsel in distress who represents your Christian morality and things. Maybe that's an oversimplification of it, but there's something so fascinating there Mm. about the way to defeat the dragon is to penetrate her, if it is female, and to save the chaste, virginous heroine instead and there's yes. there's just something there isn't there and that's that's it's so interesting but yeah the only female dragon i can think of is in shrek <laughs> well no actually i asked this question i think again in the doc or i don't think it was actually in the last cut but yes many of the dragons in the medieval period are female because you can see their vaginas or they've got little baby dragons next to them and around them so you can absolutely identify many of these dragons as female so you make an incredibly important point and i think depending on the kind of composition of a piece of artwork we have a lot of female dragons in the class in the ancient world as well there's a little bit of borrowing here And one of the reasons in the ancient world why a female dragon is scarier perhaps than a male dragon is because they can create baby dragons. And this concept of like this eternal damnation and horror of the dragon that can keep reproducing is Mm -hmm. greater than a male dragon. So this one called Echidna, who's like the literal mother of dragons. And she actually has so many, all the little dragons are relate to her. If you follow this family tree, all the ones you can think of, so many of them come from her. So that is a greater fear. So in some ways you can, you are getting that replication into the mm-hmm. uh, medieval period. And we see that in pop culture. If you look at Game of Thrones, the idea of producing from your own body dragons is tied to ideas of female power in that story. So that's yeah. it's really interesting that it has a historical yeah. root, if you like. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's there. So it's all the way back. It's a really fascinating aspect, I think, of... I think we could probably do a whole podcast on that. But maybe Come people have we'll had enough it. of uh, dragons' vaginas by now in this conversation. <laughs> Has anyone ever had enough of them? I don't know. Jasmine, why, why do my briefing notes say, talk about British worms? No, there is a, they're out there real. They're a thing. So there's a type of like flightless dragon that knocks about. It isn't really a worm, okay? So don't, don't worry. We see them in like various like kind of local cultures in Britain. They might be connected to special areas like little water holes or little lakes and things like that. And so you get these sort of like genres of dragon as well in the medieval period which is possibly why it's on your notes to just make the point that we we had like this like plurality of dragons in the ancient world these well you do get them i can't take them seriously already because i don't really know what they do half the time there are various stories with them and they do they do have the characteristics of other dragons but i just because they don't really have much going on for them i'm like ah 
Is that it? Just like I genuinely thought you were going to talk to me about gardening, and I, I'm not even joking. I thought <laughs> I was like, we're getting into modern gardening now. Okay, this is how dragons relate to gardening. I think this is homework for any listeners now to go away and find what is happening with these medieval so-called flightless dragons, and and to I think you know rehabilitate them in the story of the dragon. They sound like they need a little bit of zhuzhing. Do we? <laughs> do we need to zhuzh them? Are there some things that should be dead to history and stay there? And my I propose. So that might be one to go in room 101 of history. No, I'm being mean about them. I'm being mean. I mean, I think what they are, if you're looking at them, the bit that is interesting is they, they definitely give you a little look into local folklore. And that is quite good. That is quite good. <laughs> quite good. Well, I think that's a perfect, a perfect note to end on. Hopefully this podcast was also quite good. Thank you so much, Jasmine. And thank you so much for listening. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to leave us a review and let us know how much you've enjoyed this episode and others, please do so. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.